Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Okay, welcome everybody to the uh, second GDUI session at this year's American Council of the Blind uh, Convention. This is a Zoom session only. The in-person events don't start until a week from now. Uh, Yesterday, we had 14 guide dog schools give updates on what's going on in those programs, and it, it was very well received. Um, today, uh, I'd like to first um, introduce Sarah Calhoun, president of Guide Dog Users, Inc., and she'll say a few words. Thank you, Maria, and thank you, everyone, for joining us on today's uh, program, connection program, and what an interesting topic. Um, and I do thank um, a doctor, and I do apologize. I don't remember your last name. Vanderworth. Okay. Thank you. Uh, And thank you for your time and sharing this information with all of us. Um, Whether you're a guide dog uh, handler or you just have pets or are you just interested in animals, um, we welcome everyone uh, to this great presentation. And I want to thank uh, Maria Hansen, who is chair of the GDUI program this year. She has uh, scheduled and arranged all of these programs for us. So thank you, Maria. And at this time, I'll turn it back over to you. Thank you. And I'd like to thank our host, Tori, and our streamer, Brad, who are going to keep everything moving smoothly. So we appreciate that. Um, I'd like to do a couple of things here. First of all, real quickly, uh, today's door prize winners. We always like door prizes. So the first person is Roberta McCall. Roberta, you'll receive an embroidered uh, microfiber dog bath towel. Our second door prize winner is Ryan Villarreal. And Ryan, you will receive a package of scrubby instant rinse-free bath mitts for your dog. And our third prize winner is Roslyn Nadler. And Roslyn, you will receive a $10 gift certificate uh, from Amazon. Right now, I would love to introduce our uh, speaker for today who is Dr. Alexandra Vandervoort. And there's all sorts of titles after her name, which I love this. It's like an alphabet soup. DVM, I can figure that one out. MS, I can figure that out. DCVO, I can figure that out. College Veterinary Ophthalmologist or whatever. And DECVO, uh, she's a senior veterinarian. Uh, specialist in ophthalmology. Uh, she's the service head of ophthalmology. She's the director of the Anna Maria and Stephen Kellen Institute for Postgraduate uh, Education. At 
the Schwarzman Animal Medical Center in New York City. And welcome, 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 Dr. Vandervoort. Thank you. You just made me smile when you said uh, the alphabet soup behind the, my name, because that's exactly what my father said sometime a long time ago. He was like, what are all these letters behind your name? I'm like, well, <laughs> that's what I've been working for for a long time. <laughs> oh. So again, thank you for inviting me to speak today. The guide dogs, I have a weak spot in my heart for them. They do amazing work. And um, I always love to see them. There's no doubt about it. And thank you, Ms. Hansen, for giving me some potential topic to talk about because there were some very good ones. And the first one is eye conditions. Like, what are some of the conditions that affect people and affect dogs as well? And um, first of all, one of the big difference between dogs and people, dogs don't really have a macula. So they don't get macular degeneration, which is, is, of course, a leading cause of blindness in people. But they do get lots of other diseases that are blinding in people as well. They do get cataract. They do get glaucoma. They do get other retinal diseases as well. And you also mentioned something about specific breeds. There is definitely some diseases that are more prone in some breeds than in others. And some of the more common guide dogs, of course, that we see, the Labradors, the Goldens, the Shepherds, the Collies, they all kind of have their own set of diseases. And if we talk about the Golden Retriever first, I love those dogs. I mean, mm-hmm. I love all dogs, but, you know, the Golden Retrievers, they're just so wonderful. But they have a very nasty disease going into in the breed. It's called, it used to be Golden Retriever uveitis. It is now more appropriate called pigmentary uveitis, and that is not a good thing. It is a disease in which slowly over time you start to get progressive inflammation inside the eye, mm-hmm. which can lead to secondary cataract formation and can also lead to secondary glaucoma and easily become blinding. Now, one of the things that makes disease, this disease so bad is that initially these eyes, these dogs don't really show any signs. So, of course, for a guide dog owners, it can sometimes be hard to tell anyway. But a lot of times guide dog owners come to me with their dog and they say, like, somebody noticed that the eye is red. Okay, very good. And told them about it. Or they have noticed that the animal is squinting the eye. And that's something something you may notice when you're petting the dog, that the dog is a little bit more sensitive on one side and is like more favoring one eye versus the other. Or, or other things as well. Or, of course, you may notice a change in vision and in working for the dog. But this disease, the animals frequently don't show many outward signs. They're not uncomfortable. They don't have hardly any redness. So it's not something that an outsider would notice right away. And because they're like these happy golden retrievers, like I said, they they just kind of compensate as long as possible until they really start to have issues with vision. And that's why this is one of the diseases that is just really nasty. 
So, of course, everybody knows what a cataract is. A cataract is an opacification in the lens. If it's a small opacification, it may not do any harm for vision. But, of course, it depends a little bit where in the lens it is. If it's a tiny cataract kind of way out in the lens, in the periphery, it may not have any significant effect on vision. If, it's just, if you put that exact same small cataract right in the center of the line of the lens, it will be right in the center of vision. And then, of course, the effect will be much worse for that. But if you start to get a complete cataract, then, of course, it becomes problematic for vision. Again, in these dogs with the pigmentary uveitis, they frequently start out with like formation of iris cysts inside the eye. And an iris cyst is basically just a hollow structure that floats inside the eye. We see it in many dog breeds. The Boston Terrier is the most common one, but we see it in other breeds as well. It's usually just one cyst, and in the vast majority of breeds, it does not mean anything. It does not interfere with vision. There's no treatment needed. However, in golden retrievers, this can be a precursor to this pigmentary uveitis. So if I see a cyst in a golden retriever, that definitely tells me that we need to follow this eye very closely. And as far as like, is there any prevention we can do for this pigmentary uveitis? Firstly, the prevention is examination. And that will get more, well, might as well talk about it about this now, because as everybody is probably aware, the American College of Veterinary Ophthalmologists once a year organizes this event where participating veterinary ophthalmologists, we all donate our time and we examine these animals for free. And then the registration is typically during the month of April and the examinations are done during the month of May or, you know, whenever they can be scheduled. Sorry, I just had to take a sip of water. Um, and these examinations are just super important. And I encourage, would encourage everybody who has got a working seeing eye dog to make sure that you participate in this event and get these eyes examined yearly. Because most of the time I find absolutely nothing, which is wonderful. That's what I want. If I examine all of them and I find absolutely nothing, that just makes my day. But in these golden retrievers, if I see some of the early, early signs, which might be just very subtle and may not be noticeable to the naked eye, but if we see these early signs, if we start these dogs on eye drops, then potentially we can delay the onset of significant blinding complications. So that's the reason why it's so important to have these eyes examined. And if I see like a golden retrieval with like cysts or early signs of disease, I certainly am going to want to see them more than once a year. If I see absolutely nothing in other breeds and I say once a year is good, but again, it all depends on what we find. Another question that came up about the ACVO examination is it necessary to dilate these eyes? Well, you get, we get the best examination if we dilate the eyes. We typically dilate the eyes with 1% pentropicamide, which will dilate the pupil for about four to six hours. And I always say during that time, the animal cannot work. So ideally, it is best to have the eyes dilated. You get the best visualization of the back of the eye, the retina, and of the lens if we dilate the pupil. But if you cannot arrange for somebody to come along, 
or or you're not able to, for instance, work with the cane for four to six hours afterwards, I would still encourage you to participate in the event because I can find a lot of information even through a non-dilated pupil. So ideally, we dilate these eyes, but if you can't, that doesn't mean that you should not participate in the free eye exam event still. Even if you cannot dilate, there's a lot of information I can get um, um, without dilating the dog. So if we come back to the specific breeds, golden retrievers also um, have a tendency or have a potential for getting a hereditary form of cataract. And this is typically what these animals are screened for in the breeding facilities. They are prone to two types of cataracts. One of them is, is a very small spot of cataract in the back of the lens. It typically does not progress to a full cataract, but we typically do exclude these animals from being a guide dog because we want them to have as perfect a vision as possible. But they typically does not have any effect for like the typical pet dog. So they can totally be rehomed to be a, a totally fine pet dog. So golden retrievers also get a complete cataract. I don't see it as much anymore. Pretty much most of the cataracts that I see in goldens is all secondary to this pigmentary uveitis. So that is the main disease that I see in goldens. In any disease, in any dog breeds, of course, we can get have other diseases like dry eye, keratoconjunctivitis conjunctivitis sicca. The way that that usually shows up most in dogs is chronic persistent redness and especially a discharge, especially a discharge early in the morning, kind of a sticky discharge. So if you notice that it seems like your dog, in, especially in the morning, has like a lot of discharge coming from the eyes, make sure to have the eyes examined and have the tear production tested because dry eye in dogs can definitely have significant impact on vision. There are some medications that can be used to treat dry eye. In people, they typically start out treating dry eye with just an over-the-counter artificial tears. That usually does not do the trick in dogs, and we actually need specific medication to stimulate tear production. But in a lot of dogs, it can be treated very well. And the whole goal of treating the dry eyes, one is comfort, and two, most important, is to keep the cornea clear. Because to be able to see well, we need to have a clear cornea. Another thing that happens in dogs frequently as they age, like the middle-aged to older dogs, they start getting little growth on their eyelids. Most of these growth are basically benign, meaning they don't spread to the rest of the body. However, if they become large, they can become irritating to the eye. So it does make sense to remove these. They have to be surgically remove, removed. And I frequently recommend combining that with like if the dog goes under anesthesia for something else anyway, for instance, needs to have his teeth cleaned or something like that, then combining that with removing those both, that's a very good idea. So that's just, those are just two things that any dog can get. Of course, any dog can have trauma to the eyelids. Um, of course, any kind of like trauma to the eye or the eyelid needs to be addressed immediately. And ideally by a veteran ophthalmologist to give the best outcome for vision. And then let me think of some other things that any dog can get. 
very common in dogs also where they have kind of an allergic conjunctivitis, an allergic pink eye, where you get kind of like a chronic redness and discharge. But that typically is associated with a very good tear production. So that's very different from like the redness and the discharge you see with a dry eye. Um, like I said, allergic conjunctivitis, I see it quite a bit. Frequently, that can be treated very nicely with some of the over-the-counter medication that's also used in people like Pataday or LOA. They can very nicely control that. Before we get to the diagnosis of that, though, you really want to make sure you exclude everything else, that we exclude any other of the other causes for red eyes, because a red eye can be a fairly benign thing, like an allergic conjunctivitis. It's not normal, but it can be treated. It doesn't have significant effect on vision. It's not really all that uncomfortable either. But there are some very significant causes for red eyes as well. Glaucoma, of course, is a very nasty blinding disease, whether you're a person or a dog. And then uh, you can have inflammation, anterior uveitis inside the eye as well. You can have a corneal ulceration, a scratch on the cornea. Those are all reasons for these eyes to be red. So a red eye definitely warrants a trip to the veterinarian to try to figure out, is this something that is minor or is this something that requires treatment? If we go back to some of the more breed specific things, just putting my little poodle down. She was sitting on my lap. Um, some of the more breed specific treatment diseases, we talk about labs, Labradors. They also have kind of the same type of cataract as you see in golden retrievers, where they can have just a small little cataract in the back of the lens. Would not be of a concern for the typical house pet, but in the seeing eye dogs, yes, that would be a reason to exclude them. You also can get retinal dysplasia where the retina is just in certain areas not formed right. In its most mildest forms, it will not have any effect on vision. In the more severe forms, that is something that could potentially lead to vision issues. And nice, well, I shouldn't say nice, but the good thing about this is this is something they're born with. So they can be screened as a very young dog, and these animals can be potentially excluded from the guide dog program before they even go into training. Something that also has gotten quite a bit of attention is Stargardt disease, which is a disease in people, but it's also been discovered in the Labrador Retriever. It is an autosomal recessive disease, apologize my little poodle just said that she wants some food and she started playing with her bowl um it is an autosomal recessive disease and there are genetic testings available for it this is also something that the um typically the breeding facilities that breed these guide dogs uh, would screen for if you have a guide dog yourself and you're interested in it, certainly there is um, there are genetic tests available that you can have done to see whether your dog is. If your dog is a carrier, it's probably not going to have any effect on the vision of your dog. It really would not be an, unless your dog has both abnormal genes because it's an autosomal recessive um, degen and autosomal recessive disease which means you need to have both copies of the artifact of the abnormal gene, one from both parents for the disease to manifest itself. 
Another thing that is just not necessarily for Labradors, but any dog, is that it's not uncommon that as animal age, you can start to see some change in vision. Of course, as we all age, at some point in time, our lenses get denser. It's the reason why people need reading glasses. Same thing happens in animals. And as they start to get really quite old, then you may start to see that the close-up vision is just really not as good as it used to be. Frequently, by that time, they will have retired from the normal guiding working career. But if you have, I have seen very old guide dogs, like 13 or 14, that were still working and were still working very well, according to their handlers. And they definitely had the nucleosclerosis, the normal aging change. And the owners did notice that, yes, he does seem to be, I kind of have to hold the treat a little bit further away from his nose. Otherwise, he's just sniffing for it. And that's because the lens is getting denser. It is also normal that as they age, they start to get a decrease in uh, vision at night and decrease in peripheral vision as well. We'll talk a little bit more about that as well. Going back to the specific diseases for the various breeds, the collie dog, I don't see many collies as, as guide dogs, but I know they're being used. They have the collie eye anomaly, which is, again, something they're born with, so they can be screened for it early on. In its most mild form, it, again, has no effect on vision whatsoever. In the more severe forms, yes, it can definitely have effect on vision, and those animals will be excluded from the training program. Shepherds. I do see a fair number of those. The main diseases I would say that the German Shepherd gets is actually two. One of them is it's not uncommon in German Shepherds I see as they reach middle age, you start to get little tiny, tiny, very tiny. Did I say tiny? Spots of cataracts multiple in the center of their lens. It tends to not cause any problems with vision, but they are there. But I really don't think they have any effect on visions. But the most important disease that typically think about in shepherds is something that we call panis, or the more scientific terms, chronic superficial keratitis. And this is a disease where the cornea starts basically attacking itself. And it starts in an area that is kind of like outwards down and it's on the cornea but it starts at the periphery on the cornea and initially it's typically starts in both eyes and it starts in a similar location in both eyes and it starts with like vessels growing into the cornea really for no reason and that's one of the hallmarks of this disease there's no reason for these vessels to be there they shouldn't be there Vessels can be a good thing in the cornea if you've got a cornea ulcer that needs to be healed, then vessels can be good in the whole healing process. And once the ulcer is healed, the vessels will start to go away. In panis, these vessels are there for no reason, and they're detrimental. These vessels are frequently followed by pigmentation that also goes into the cornea. And that, over time, can become so severe that they can start interfering with vision. Again, this is something you want to catch early. Again, yearly eye exams, super important. And if we catch it early, there are medications that hopefully can control it. There are some participating factors in that the animals that are in a very 
high altitudes like in Colorado in the mountains. And for animals that are in very sunny areas, they are more likely to get problems with this. And they are also more likely to get disease that is very difficult to control. I personally do think there's also an individual dog variety, variety to it. And the reason why I say that, as everybody has noticed, I have an accent. I was born and raised in the Netherlands and I did part of my training in the Netherlands. And the Netherlands, for those who not know, is a country that is a huge part below sea level. So not really high up in the mountains. And it tends to have very little sun. So not really much sun. So I remember back in the Netherlands, I saw some of the cases of the worst tanners. So yes, high altitude and um, sun are definitely potential of risk factors for making the disease worse. But there's more going on, knowing that I saw a lot of very bad tanners back in the Netherlands, where it's below sea level and there's not much sun there. So uh, what medication do we typically use to treat it? We use anti-inflammatory medications, and then we use medications to try to control the pigmentation as well, which can be something like cyclosporin or it can be tacrolimus. Again, this all should be under the guidance of a veterinary ophthalmologist to try to give the best possible chance of keeping these eyes comfortable and visual for the rest of the dog's life. Shepherds can also get a related disease in their third eyelid, where their third eyelid, the third eyelid is the extra eyelid that people don't have, but that can help protect the surface of the eye, and that also has a gland that's very important for tear production. These um, shepherds, they can also sometimes uh, get uh, something we call a third eyelid plasmoma, where you get like a very erosive red um, inflammation of the third eyelid. Again, these animals typically don't show much clinical signs, but it might be that somebody that's passing by or a friend says like, if you notice that your dogs in the inner corner, the eye looks really red. If you've got a shepherd, that will be a reason to say, okay, it's time to see a veteran ophthalmologist. Poodles, I don't see many of my sky dogs, but I know they're being used as well. They potentially do get cataracts. Again, that's something that is a hereditary issue in these guys, and they get screened for it. And they also have the potential glaucoma. Truthfully, glaucoma, I see in any dog. Um, this is one of those widespread problems. It is more prominent in certain breeds, but any breed potentially can get it. Glaucoma in dogs can be very quickly blinding and it can be painful as well. This certainly is a very nasty disease. Okay, so that is something about the breed specific diseases that we see in the various breeds that are most commonly guiding. Um, I've already talked to the ACVO examination. Again, dilation is great, but if you can do it, still have participate in the program and have these eyes evaluate yearly. Then we talk a little bit more about vision in the dogs. How do these dogs see? Well, of course, part of it is they can't talk. So we can't make them read a chart. So a lot of this research is based on behavior or is based on basically physics and optics and where we try to figure out what they see. First of all, the color, the vision, the question that I very commonly get, what kind of color vision do dogs have? Typically, people see three different colors. 
dogs do not. They only see two out of the three colors. And they most they see the bluish and the bluish and the yellow green colors best. They have a very hard time distinguishing between red and green, which means the traffic lights, the red and the green, they all kind of look the same to them. They can't really distinguish. For those of you who work with dogs and um, are able to see color in dog toys, um, you may have noticed a shift because in the past, it always used to be that dog toys, uh, typically the red toys, because they were easy visible in the grass. It's true. They're easy visible in the grass for the typical person, but they're not so easily visible in grass for the typical dog. So we see more and more blue toys or bright yellow toys come. And they are much better because the dogs can can uh, distinguish between the, that toy and the grass much better. So again, dogs mostly see the blue and the yellow, not so much the red and the green. How is dogs' vision otherwise? Well, there is a difference in the accommodation of the lens. Accommodation is, is where the lens basically changes the shape and the size to be able to focus the light onto the retina. When you're born as a person, you have a tremendous focusing power. An infant can focus the lens 15 diopter, which is tremendously. As we age slowly, that focusing power is lost. And by the time you reach the age of like 40, it's getting to the point where, um, unless you have other problems, but typically you would start to need uh, reading glasses. By the time you reach the age of like 50, 55, there's hardly any focusing powers whatsoever. And even a person with perfectly fine vision, otherwise definitely needs reading glasses. Dog really doesn't have much of an accommodation uh, power. They only can accommodate about one to three diopters. So they really don't have much of a focusing ability, which means that if you think about it, the effect of nucleosclerosis on vision in dogs and basically losing the ability to accommodate is probably not as bad as it is in person. Dogs do also have the ability to see much farther out than a typical person. Their overlapping visual field between the two eyes is not as big as it is in person. The area in which they have binocular vision is about 60 degrees, meaning that they have about a 60 degrees area in front of them where they use both eyes to be able to see. Outside that area, they have about a 90 degree vision with just one eye on both sides. So if you add those numbers up, they only have about 120 degree blind spots and people have a much bigger blind spot. There is no way, even with the best of vision, that you can actually see partially behind you. You can't, but a dog actually can. Now, do dogs see as well as focused as we do? No, they don't. The visual acuity, of course, in people is measured in the Snellen chart, which everybody is, is, is familiar with. And normal vision, we think, is 20-20. In the dogs, they would think the vision is about 20-50. Now, one thing that dogs do better than us is seeing at night. I always tell my interns that a dog, if I can still see in the dark, a dog should be able to see better which means that if I turn off all the lights in the exam room and I have just a tiny light there, enough of me for to be able to see around, 
and avoid obstacles, then a dog should be able to zip around that room no problem. Which means that if I can see an animal bump into things in a very dark room, that means that an animal really does have a problem. And that is most importantly about like the difference between vision in dogs and people. And those are honestly the things that I had written down. And I guess I just really wrote, um, talk much faster than I thought I was going to talk. So maybe at this point in time, I'm actually going to see if there's any questions that I may be able to talk about. Hi, Dr. Vandervoort. I actually have one, just this thing with the vision in uh, when it's dark, uh, darker out. I'm totally blind, and I used to never have my lights on. And it's dawned on me that, you know, maybe that's not fair to the dog at night. So I make sure now that I always have um, a light on or low light in the house or the apartment at night for the dog. Is that necessary? I mean, I, I think it's polite to the dog. I think it's a nice thing to do. And I think a little bit of help of light certainly makes our life easier. They could probably navigate quite all right in a very dark room, but it certainly makes our life easier by just having a little night light here and there. So, yeah, I think it's a nice thing to do. Okay. Uh, why don't we open it up to other people? And uh, if um, uh, Tori can help. Hello. Sorry about that. Um, okay. Thank you. Great presentation. I have had four guide dogs in my uh, career, whatever you call it, with dogs. And the one question that I have is, and I have cats, and this has been an issue with them too. When you don't have a family member or somebody near you to help you to put ointment or drops in their eyes, um, I had to have somebody come in at 5 a.m. and it, in the evening to do that with for my cat. Is there a way that a blind person, and I am totally blind, can put in ointment or drops uh, in your dog's eyes without hurting them. Cause you know, it sometimes if, if you have to do it and you don't have somebody to help you, what can we do in that case? Thanks. That can be a tough one. Um, I have, I have basically had blind people who had nobody in their household to administer the drop they learned, and it seems for some people, drops were easier. For some people, ointment were easier. What I, what, what they would basically do is they would put their hands on the dog's head and then locate the eyelids. And with one hand, gently open the eyelids. And what happens if a dog, if you gently open the eyelids, the dog initially doesn't like it. And it kind of tries to close the eyes. So you feel through your hand, you feel these eyelids like trying to squint. But then if you kind of just gently hold it there, they relax and they see there's nothing as bad as coming. And then with your other hand and with the bottle of the eye drops, you can try to get a drop in. And what happens is as soon as you hit the eye, as soon as you hit the target, you will feel with your other hands that the eyelid is trying to close because the dog just felt a drop in its eyeball. 
So that way they were able to tell whether or not they got a drop in. I actually had one owner that said, you know what? I'm going to just get a bottle of just artificial tears and I'm going to practice this because <laughs> if my dog ever needs some um, eye drops, I want to be able to do that. So, so that is one way that blind, totally blind people have been able to use the eye drops, but it's not easy. There's no doubt about it. Some people find it's easier to do ointments and ideally the ointment goes directly from the tube. But of course, you got to be pretty closely to the eye to do that. Um, but some people find that easier. Again, with one hand, you gently open the eyelids and then with the other hand, you kind of like come very close to the hand that opens the eyelids. And then you try to, and then you try to squeeze some of the ointment close to it. Some people prefer to put a little bit on a finger first and then put it in the eye. That's not ideal, but if that's the only way to get it in, it certainly is better than not getting it in. Dr. Vanderwart, would it make any difference whether the dog was facing you or facing away from you? I would say whatever is easiest. I would think it is probably be easiest if the dog is sitting next to you Mm -hmm. with, or potential, I'm just, let me think about it. It probably be (laughs) easier if the dog is sitting next to you and the head, the nose is kind of facing away for you because that way you have both eyes, you have the eye kind of like lined up. But if a dog really doesn't want to be treated, what you may need to do is have you have the dog put their head on your lap so that Uh the nose is kind of supported up. And then you can open the eyelids and try to do it. Doug Hole. Good afternoon. Fantastic presentation. I really enjoyed it. I have a question. I live in Florida where it's very sunny most of the time. It was suggested that I consider the idea of sunglasses on my dog when he's outside working. Do you have any thoughts about that? I would honestly be hesitant. And the reason why I say that, because there's all sorts of doggles. But um, when the company first came out with it many years ago, uh, I think they sent a pair to every ophthalmologist to try And at that time, I have a very docile greyhound. So I just put him on it, and he kind of looked at me like, what are you doing this for doing me for? (laughs) He tolerated, and and then he took a nap, and then he woke up, and the things were completely twisted and distorted and, like, pressed on his arm, like, okay, this didn't work too well. I would worry a little bit about these, like, doggles, about them potentially, like distorting your dog's vision or maybe like shifting during when you're walking and like like impairing the eye. So I guess I will be a little hesitant doing it when they're working. Maybe if you're just like laying outside on, you know, just having a nice nap or something or just enjoying the outside and you're with them, um, then maybe put it on. But when they're working for you, I will be a little hesitant. Okay, interesting. Thank you. Hi, this is Deb Lewis. Uh, my question, is, 
Uh, by the way, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, because it gets confusing with two Deb Lewises in the organization. Um, my question is about supplements uh, and vi vitamins. Are there any vitamins or herbal or mineral supplements that would be good to give a dog to keep their eyes healthy? Good question, and I would say generally supplement just a good balanced diet. That is probably the most important thing you can do. Um, there are some supplements on the market, um, like for instance, one of them is AccuGlow, which was a supplement developed by veterinary ophthalmologists, and I'm not endorsing it or anything or associated with the company. But if I see any kind of potential degenerating diseases, I typically recommend it. But the truth about it is, is once we get to that stage, then these animals probably would not be working for you anymore. So I don't think it's really necessary, besides having just a good balanced diet, I don't think it's necessary to have additional supplements for the eye health. Thank you. And I, I really appreciate you coming and talking with us today. I've really enjoyed your presentation. Oh, you're very welcome. I guess, like I said, I talked a little faster than I thought I would. So, <laughs> but it gives more time for questions. Yes, hi, this is Judy, and yes, this is just fantastic. My dog was diagnosed. Well, I shouldn't say diagnosed. He's got model tapinol reflectivity, and he was raised diagnosed. Raised hand, Sarah Calhoun plus three raised hand. Close. Press the MD plus to open pocket. Progressive retinal atrophy might be a possibility. So I'd love to talk about that. I did these, and she did recommend the Oculo. And so we did on that, and it does seem to be keeping that reflectivity from getting worse. But I'd love to hear about. PRA and how common that is. He is a lab. Well, progressive retinal atrophy is a genetically determined uh, retinal degeneration in purebred dogs. And it all depends on the dog breed as to how significant it is and at which age they typically start to have vision uh, problems with it. PRA, it's, it's not, it is a progressive retinal degeneration, which eventually definitely can lead to blindness, loss of vision. That is one of those cases where I think Oculoglow, it's, um, there's really nothing else that we can do. So I would certainly, if it, my dog had it, I would certainly do it. Um, but that is certainly a dog where I would be very cautious as far as how he's working. Initially, you will probably see a difference in vision at night. And because that's typically most retinal degenerations, most PRAs, it affects the vision at night first. So if you start noticing that at night when it's really, you know, let's say 6 p.m. in the middle of the winter or 10 p.m. in the middle of the summer, you notice he doesn't really want to go outside. It might, might, might be that he doesn't see all that well. So that might be one that you may want to have potentially to like the school evaluate how the dog is working because I would be a little concerned about that. That's great. I appreciate that. And hold on, I had a follow-up question. Oh, how easy is it to diagnose? Because he has been through a couple electroretinograms, and I asked her if it was time to do another one because we do take advantage of the free eye exams. And, you know, when I just saw her this past May, she said, no, I don't know if we need to do another ERG. It seems to be stable. Is the ERG the most easy way to diagnose PRA? 
Well, the PRE, that is the electroretinogram tests the retinal function. And if it mm-hmm. seems like the retinal function on the electroretinogram is still good, then we're good. Um, so it's like PRE is really just a diagnosis by clinical examination and then usually um, or sometimes confirmed by electroretinogram to see um, what their retinal function is actually doing. So, yeah, it sounds like it's well taken care of. Perfect. Thank you so much. I was just sure. really intrigued because you know, I have retinitis pigmentosa and the PRA seems to follow some of the same patterns, you know, trouble seeing yes. at night can lead to total blindness. <laughs> it's like, this is yes. really ironic. <laughs> and he has yes. retired. He, he, he did retire a year after he was diagnosed with this retinal okay. reflectivity. So Perfect. I still have him. He's a great pet. And ironically, I did notice last night that when I took him out, it seemed like he didn't want to go over to the darker part because I always turn on the outside light for him when I take him out okay. to park. But last mm-hmm. night I noticed for the first time he wasn't as eager to go around the side mm-hmm. of the home like he usually does to go to the bathroom. All right. Thank you very right. much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Uh, um, I work a shepherd, but since you mentioned that the golden retrievers um, have certain eye diseases that are prominent in their breed, with the schools that use lab golden crosses, um, should those folks who have crosses, back crosses, and triple crosses be concerned about that because of the fact that there is golden retriever, you know, in in the makeup? Excellent question. And it seems like the pigmentary uveitis is something that we see in the golden retriever and every once in a while something fairly similar is starting to pop up in the Labrador. So we're kind of like watching that in the Labrador. There's some other breeds in which is reported the Great Dane, but you know, there's very few Great Dane guide dogs. Um, but I must say like clinically, like in the clinic, what do I see? It seems like all these crosses, they still have their own brand. They still have a set of problems with like the cataract and everything. So I would say some of the specific, very specific diseases like Panis in the Shepherd, like Pigmentary UVIs and Golden Retrievers, probably less likely in some of the crossings. But the crossings, mm-hmm. they can have their own problems as well. Oh, that would hey. be interesting hey. to learn about. Hey. You're welcome. Charlene. Yes, good morning, and thank you, doctor, very much for the presentation. It's very, very uh, enlightening, I suppose. Um, I did have a German Shepherd with Panis, and she was first diagnosed with just uh, conjunctivitis, but it uh, eventually was diagnosed properly by an ophthalmologist. Um, and we did, I did use drops. To control it, she never did lose all her vision, uh, but uh, we did have to use drops. And I had a suggestion. The way I was able to do it more most easily uh, was to have her sit, and then I straddled her uh, so that her head was between my legs, and I was able to to aim the drops. And I'm totally blind too, so. Um, I was able to get the drops in her eyes without much difficulty. Uh, I would also suggest for those who have to do that, um, a little treat afterwards, mm-hmm. especially in the beginning, is uh, helpful. Mm-hmm. 
to get the dogs to stay still. Thanks. Thank you so much for presenting to us. Thank you. That's actually, you know, that, that's something I always tell any owner of any dog that needs eye drop. Treats are the trick. No <laughs> doubt about it. But yeah, thank you for that suggestion. Deanna Noriega. Oh, Deanna. Um, I had an idea that I was going to run past you. I had bought for my Labrador, and I haven't, um, he was a large Labrador, um, a visor, just as a joke. Um, it was a little like a baseball cap, but more of a visor without the top. And the ears went through openings above the brim, and it fastened behind the ears with a Velcro strap to keep it on the head. And um, it said red hot chili pepper across the, <laughs> the part between the ears. And it just was like a sunshade above the eyes. And I was wondering if that might help the man from Florida that's concerned about too much sunlight, you know, causing damage to his dog's eyes the way it does humans. Um, and I, and it wasn't because the ears held it in place. I don't think it would shift readily. And because it was above the eyes rather than around them, I don't think it would, um, you know, ever come in contact with the eyes, even if it got clipped from the side. Um, but it was just a novelty thing that I used with that dog. It sounds like something that could work, actually, to keep the sun out. And uh, that would be one of those things where it would require another visual person to go like, yep, there's no sun in the dog's eyes anymore. And, you know, just to make sure there's nothing interfering. But, yeah, yeah that the, could work. The only thing I thought it might interfere with is the dog's ability to look up and judge limbs and, and things that would hit you in the head. <laughs> Because, of course, our guide dogs are trained to do that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Would it affect the dog's field of vision, too, just normally? Um, would that be a distraction? Because they don't just see straight ahead, I don't believe. Well, it wasn't. Um, it didn't okay. go on the sides of the head. The, the little brim just stuck up out in front of the eyes like a baseball cap. Yeah, that's so, what I'm talking about. Yeah, so I think the only directional problem would be if they were trying to look up to judge right. whether a a limb or something at head height was occluding their path. So it would be like a trade-off. Um, or that know. could also be one of those things is that you put on when the dog's just relaxing outside. Yeah. And it's not working. Yeah, it because that's what I said. Yeah, and then put it back on when he's like I said, if he's just relaxing outside in the sun, yeah. enjoying it. He was pretty mellow about stuff, and it didn't seem to bother him either way. Um, and he was a very strong, capable worker. So, um, I think. The only other thing I ever put on his head was a gentle leader, and that was when he was too exuberant, and I needed to settle him down and get his focus back on guiding instead of dragging me at 90 miles an hour. Okay. <laughs> okay. Go ahead, Sarah. 
All right. Thank you so much. Um, I have a question for your opinion. Um, my husband is sighted and, uh, over, I'm on my second guide dog. Um, but we have purchased some balls, um, that you can toss and they're hard balls, but they also can, uh, will blink and they have a little battery inside of it. And so you can have it blink. And so when you throw them at nighttime, um, not only can a sighted person <laughs> see the ball, but I guess the, the dog can also find the, the ball easier as well. Um, do you, do you recommend those toys? Are those toys okay to play for in, play within the dark, the blinking? Yeah, or... I, would think, I would think that they should be as, as long as you make sure there's not any kind of like electronics in there that if the dog bites, I have yeah. two dogs and one of them would destroy anything and, you know, would probably swallow the little piece of mechanic that was making it blink. So that would be the only practical um, thought I had. But yeah, no, it's totally fine. The one thing about toy, and this has got nothing to do with the eyes. Our dentists always say that tennis balls are the worst things for dogs' teeth. They really, yeah. really wear down the teeth. So don't use tennis balls. Like I said, it's got nothing to do with the eyes, but it's just uh, our dentist always says this. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I thought there was some eye condition that, that poodles were susceptible to. But... Um, yeah, I mean, poodles, they get, they get a number of things. They potentially get cataracts, they get glaucoma. And what, of course, pretty much every poodle has is they've got the tearing and the tear staining and the crusty discharge. So it kind of just comes with having a poodle. Um, it's relatively harmless. It's just a matter of, uh, of maintenance. But um, I must say that having observed poodles over like a 20 30 year span it seems like a lot of the a lot of the poodle breeders have really made a good advantage and good uh, foot forward in like getting rid of things like cataracts and things like that in the breed i don't nearly see it as much anymore as i used to thank you i, I have a question if a dog has cataracts uh-huh do veterinarians do cataract surgery and put lenses in the eye? I mean, is yep. this beyond? Yes, really? we do. We do cataract surgery. And we do put artificial lenses in as well. I always say, though, that they cannot work after surgery. Okay. Well, that's... The, reason, the reason why I say that is because I always tell the typical pet owner that we give them good vision back. We don't give them perfect vision back. Now, everything is relative, of course, because I remember this big 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 brown chocolate labrador sweet as can be mm -hmm. and he was diabetic and he developed cataracts and so they came in for a consultation for cataract surgery and i said i can do surgery but he cannot work afterwards and they were like okay so i did cataract surgery and then i come to find out that he was still kind of working but here's what he did this uh this dog was helping an older gentleman 
And he was basically um, once a day or so in the morning, he would leave his building. He walk about a hundred yard into a park, like no crossing roads or anything. He would just like walk to a park and then sit on a bench with his dogs for a cup for with his dog for a couple hours. Both of them perfectly happy. So this dog was basically guiding him for like twice a day for a hundred yards, and uh, that he could do just fine. But I would not want a dog like guiding you through traffic, guiding you through the subway station. No, that had cataract surgery. We just do, we give them good vision back. We don't give them as good a vision as they used to have if they have normal lenses. Oh, that's fascinating. Melanie Brunson. Thank you. Um, I really have learned a lot from this presentation. So thank you. Um, I, I'm, you may have covered this. I came in a little bit late, but talking about what dogs see, um, I'm curious as to how far, um, they see and does it make a difference at what angle they're looking at in terms of, um, determining what it is that they're, what they're able to see? I'm not exactly sure that I can completely answer that. I I okay. do not know how far they can see. Just I guess I don't knowing... mean in terms of um you know an exact number of feet or yards, okay. but like do they see, for instance, um across the room, or oh, yeah. uh, can they oh, yeah. can they recognize a person? Um, if they, you know, enter a room and the dog is at one end and, you know, the person is at the other. Um, yes, they definitely oh. can. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, they definitely can. Okay. Their um, acuity is not as good as in people. They don't see as sharp and as focused as we do. But yes, they can definitely recognize a person um, coming or entering from the room, even if they're on the other side of the room. Also realize that Dogs have a whole lot more of vision than just vision. They have the sense. They have so many other things. Um, so, yes, they can definitely recognize it. And knowing how incredibly capable some of these hunting dogs are in that they spot things like a long ways away. They, they, they are quite amazing. Mm. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Tori, next. Viola. Hi, thank you for taking my second question because I forgot to ask. I live in Washington State, and I wanted to know if you knew if there was one of those eye events like, say, in Seattle somewhere. I assume it would be a big metropolitan area where they might have this thing in April or May. Or how would I find out? The um, good question, basically um, somewhere in like March or so, Go on the www.acvo.org website, and it should be announced for that the um, that the iClin that the free annual eye exam event, whether or not it's going to be held that year, and then um, it, there should be a way to like sign up, and it should give you locations of the people who are actually doing it in your area. So it's acvo.org. And there is a link in that announcement uh, where you can go and see uh, various 
states where the locations are for that yeah. state. And I think there are certain parts of Canada, some of the vets there that participate also. Yeah, it's basically open to any ACVO diplomats worldwide. And then most of them, of course, are in the United States and Canada. Okay. Okay, very good. Um, first, thanks for describing sometimes what your poodle was doing. Our, do Bouviers have particular eye conditions that Bouvier handlers need to be aware of? Yes. And the reason why I say that, again, I grew up in the Netherlands and the Bouvier was a big breed okay. there. They got terrible glaucoma. Mm-hmm. And honestly, we really don't see them that much in this in this country. I have seen over the years a couple of Bouviers with glaucoma. It is something that I think they're also actively trying to breed out. But yes, they do have terrible glaucoma. And I'd like to add, I had a Bouvier guy dug many years ago, and I know two other people that had Bouviers, and they all died young of heart problems. Um, and one other thing with the Bouvier, you've got that hair, you know, that's coming down sort of over the face. There's a certain grooming, you know, uh, trim. So just just throwing that out. Uh, I want to uh, initially here thank Dr. Vanderwart. This was fabulous um you know i I, there's so many interesting facts and pieces of information that you shared with us and i guess one thing is a lot of uh eye conditions can be treated the uh advice seems to be to diagnose early um and uh you know it's not necessarily a career ending uh diagnosis it might be because safety is important but uh just i so appreciate that you joined us here today dr vanderford oh you're very welcome like i said sorry i kind of i thought i would talk longer but it gave us time for a good question so absolutely and you packed a lot of information in there <laughs> So I know you have a graduation to go to? (laughs) Yeah, tomorrow morning. My daughter is graduating high school. Okay. Well, I want to thank you. And other people just stay around for a couple of minutes because Sarah will maybe mention something to you. But thank you so much, Dr. Vanderborn. You're very welcome. You have a good day. You too. Thank you so much, Dr. Vanderborn. Thank you. You're very welcome. Hey, so Sarah, do you want, last night a couple of things happened with resolutions? Oh, okay. Yes, the uh, uh, GBUI submitted two resolutions to ACB, and they were uh, discussed and voted on last night. Uh, The first one had to do with the rideshare problems and the denials um, and filing with DOJ and, and things like that. And the our resolution did pass. Um, and the second one what had to do with um, uh, with the attestation forms uh, when that the are now required to or most airlines are using and requiring the DOT forms to be completed. And so we did submit a resolution um, to rescind those 
uh, forms because we feel that uh, in under the ADA, um, the two questions can be asked, um, uh, you know, of your of your service dog or guide dog, and we feel that should be the same for the airlines, and that we should not have to be filling out these forms. So, and that did pass as well. So, we are very excited and happy about about that. And it's as we all know the uh, the uh, the the world or the government is uh, works slowly very slowly but we are still in there and uh you know making a difference but it it might take a while but we are certainly working hard uh typically on those two areas as well as other ones too but um these have been quite troublesome for so many uh guide dog service dog handlers so we thank acb and the people that voted I want to thank Tori and Brad again, too. And uh, if I could say real quick, this is Sarah. If anybody is interested in joining GDUI, uh, it's $15 a year. And you can join online at gdui.org or call our office manager, Lynn Merrill, at 866-799-8436. And uh, we would welcome everyone's participation and membership.